The statistics are grim. One in five working moms say they've been passed over for an important assignment or for a promotion because they have children. And women who take even one year off to have kids come back to earn 40% less than their peers. Working moms outpace, outperform, and outwork their peers. So why don't companies make an effort to support working moms? And how can working moms advocate for themselves in the workplace and in their careers? Frankly, we're tired of asking for a seat at the table. It's time to make our own table, and we're going to talk about how. I'm Zabine Mirza, and this is Moms at Work. Friends and fans, welcome to another episode of Moms at Work. This is, of course, the official podcast of Jobs.Mom. I'm your host, Sabine Mirza, and today we're talking about public health and pandemics. My guest today in our pre-podcast chat said something very interesting to me. She said, we expect a pandemic about every 100 years, and from every 15 to 20 years, we can expect an epidemic. And uh, we're going to be talking about pandemics. We're going to be talking about epidemics. We're going to be talking about public health. But we're also going to be talking about the flip side of this health crisis, and that is that there are women and mothers that are out of work in numbers that have not been seen for a very, very, very long time. Um, So here with me today, very special guest, Dr. Megan Amerson Brown, PhD of Clinical Microbiology, Public Health, and Infection Control. Megan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. So that's a mouthful. Clinical microbiology, public health, and infection control. So break it down for us us that are um, not as sophisticated as you in this field. Tell us, what is it that you study? What is it that you do? So I have two main specialties. So um, the first one is Um, diagnostic testing. So for infectious diseases, how do we test for those infectious diseases? Um, What's the best methodology to test? Because a lot of people just think, oh, sequence everything or, oh, do PCR or molecular testing or, you know, all these great um, genomic level tests that we can do. Um, But that's not always ideal for all infectious diseases, and especially with all the different specimen types that we can get from the human body. Um, So for example, urine for one has a lot of PCR inhibitors in it. So we have to do special things to urine sometimes to um, make sure that we're not actually, you know, snuffing out um, anything we might be uh, or should be detecting. Um, So diagnostic testing is one. And then uh, that includes diagnostic testing for, you know, common diseases that you would go to the doctor for, um, but also public health problems. Um, And so like tuberculosis or TB, um, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, as you probably are more familiar with it as, um, you know, public health type of concerns. Um, And then with that, I also have a second specialty in infection control. Um, So not only how do we test for these diseases, but how do we control for them and, you know, prevent transmission? Um, I do less community. um, You know, that's more epidemiology, public health, when we think of that. And infection control is more hospital-based transmission. So how do we stop people that are in the hospital 
from getting new infections when they're in the hospital. Um, so this has become an increasing concern, especially with you know multi-drug resistant organisms, because the most common place to get those um, or the, where most people get those is actually in the hospital. So they go into the hospital for something. And while they're in the hospital, they get another infection with an organism that they picked up you know, in the hospital, potentially, you know, from something that a healthcare worker brought in from off the street or something that another patient actually had an infection with. Um, and so preventing that person to person transmission within the patient care setting um, is kind of my second um, area of expertise. So I have board certifications um, in both areas. So that sounds extremely um, ambitious. And uh, knowing you, I know you're an extremely brilliant and ambitious individual. And we were actually talking before the show about, you know, kind of some of the work that you've been doing in the pandemic. And I know now more than ever, your um, skills and your background and your expertise is in immense, immense demand. And I know you have been on the front line. So we do thank you for your service and everything that you have done to, to help us. But share a little bit about how your work has translated um, into this pandemic that we're in right now. Yeah, so I actually was, I had decided at the beginning, well, this was pre-COVID, um, I had decided to take some time off to stay at home and be a mom because I had a newborn baby. And so I was going to take like a year, year and a half off. Um, and then my daughter was probably 10, nine or 10 months old when COVID hit. And um, I got a call to go to New York City to work at Elmhurst Hospital, um, which if you paid attention to the news, that was where they always showed all the refrigeration trucks because so many people were dying at that hospital from COVID-19. Um, and so uh, I got a call to go there and um, work in their infection control department and, you know, kind of revamp some of their procedures and how they were doing things to, you know, really prevent um, patients that were coming in for potentially other things other than COVID to prevent them from getting infected um, also, transmission to healthcare workers um, at that time wasn't and still is a, a big concern. You know, how do you care for a patient with COVID without infecting yourself um, and with a limited supply of PPE? What PPE should you be wearing to prevent COVID? And then how often should you be changing it? When should you be changing it? Can we, you know, there was a lot of talk on the news even about mask disinfection, disinfectants. Um, and how to reprocess masks. Um, and so my job there was really to um, look at what they were doing and rethink what they were doing and how they were doing it for a better outcome than what they currently had. And uh, so that was my main goal there was to prevent other patients from getting infected that currently did not have COVID and then also to prevent the healthcare workers from getting infected that did not have COVID. Um, so I worked. Um, with the infection control department. I worked very closely with infectious disease when I was there and also with the critical care teams um, when I was there as well. Because um, yeah. the whole hospital had basically turned into an ICU. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was it was terrifying. And you flew all the way from Texas to New York to, to be here yeah. to support our teams. Um, and, you know, I remember in those early days when, as you mentioned, there was such a dearth of PPE 
you know, what do you do when you don't have the healthcare workers to take care of the sick patients? You need to make sure that you're protecting the healthcare workers. Um, and so, you know, I can't imagine the enormity of the task and also um, the nerves, right, of being at the epicenter of, of something like that and being responsible for, for making sure that those workers are safe. So um, what a monumental, monumental task. Now, one of the things that we were talking about, and I had referenced earlier, you had mentioned that, you know, we look at a major pandemic like this every hundred years. And of course, with every major pandemic, there are different societal domino effects and ripple effects that kind of, you know, play out because of the pandemic. And one of the biggest things that we're seeing right now is a social uh, byproduct is major, major unemployment, right? Mm -hmm. And the people disproportionately being impacted are mothers, right? Uh, Mothers are being forced out of the workplace in, you know, unprecedented numbers. Millions and millions of mothers have been pushed out of work because they have been unable to balance their work and childcare. So to that, I would say as a new mother, somebody with an infant that that had to leave the infant to go and take care of the rest of us, because we had no idea what we were doing. They needed Dr. Megan Brown from Texas to come to New York to school us on how to take care of our healthcare workers. Megan, talk to us a little bit about what was your, how did pre and post baby Megan at work what were the differences? How was your mindset different, especially in this field that you're in that is so high risk? What was the thought process? So the way I've always looked at my job is I am one of the experts in infection prevention and control. And if I can't take care of myself and, you know, do proper technique and proper, you know, hygiene to make sure that I'm preventing that transmission and I'm breaking that chain effect of transmission, you know, then how can I expect anyone else to? So with that, I, you know, it was risky. The risk of me getting sick was, you know, high, but I had to look at it as I know what I'm doing better than anyone else knows what they're doing. So if I can't stop myself from getting sick, why am I going to expect other people to not get sick. Right. Um, and so I had to, I wouldn't say that I looked at it necessarily as a risk at that point. Then it was more of, I know what I need to do. I know what I should do and I'm just going to do it and know that I trust myself. This has become habit and kind of instinct for me doing it over and over and over and over and over again. Um, it becomes almost like second nature. Um, and so at that point I didn't consider it as big of a risk risk. Um, I will say that after I had my daughter, I became a lot more ambitious in my career. Um, you know, I was more okay pushing boundaries at that point in my career. I was more okay taking risks um, because it had always been important to me to be a working mom. It was important to me to show my daughter that you can have family and career. And, you know, you're you're always going to have trouble finding that balance and there's going to be sacrifice in some areas, in both areas, but you should really work to excel at both being a mom and having that career. And if you really want to, you can. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, like, and I think that a lot of it has to do with personality too. I really do. You know, some people are more type A personality 
and, you know, real go-getters and other people aren't. And there's nothing wrong with being the latter. Trust me. Some days I'm like, I'm so tired. I wish like I could just stop myself. (laughs) Um, But something inside of me is like, I can't stop. Um, So um, I can understand that. But you know what, what, what you're saying is so like, just the first part of what you were saying is, I know I'm good at what I do. I know I'm the expert. I know what I have to do and I just have to go and do it. And I think that is the mother's mantra, right? In general, right? right? We just got to buckle up, suck it up. And there's no time for fear or worry or anxiety or none of that because we just need to have laser focus. This is the job. This is the task. We can think about later after we accomplished it. Um, but I think that's so powerful. And there's so many, there's so many women, Megan, that are listening to this that, for example, are maybe out of, out of the workplace for a number of years because they've, they've left to have kids or Mm -hmm. they've been let go in the pandemic. And, you know, there's a major, no matter how confident and how type A you are, it does start to sow seeds of uncertainty in your mind. Am I good enough? Am I still relevant? Right. But I think, yeah. What you said is so powerful. And to everybody listening, you are. You absolutely yeah. are. You 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 know what you're good at. You know what you can do. And nobody and nothing should let you believe otherwise. And right. I think that is so powerful. Now, what you were saying, Megan, the, the second part about, you know, embracing being a working mom, setting that example, you know, having that ambition, the road wasn't always so easy for you, Right. And yeah. We, yeah. we we talked about that. And that's really something that I want to focus on, on on this episode is bullying and sexual harassment and bullying in the workplace, in academia, when you are studying for your doctorate. It's hard being a woman in academia, um, at work, in, in a very male-dominated field even. Mm-hmm. Um, and even harder so, you are beautiful, you are you know, tall, blonde, gorgeous, and, you know, men will stereotype you. And you have been on the receiving end of those stereotypes. And do you want to share a little bit about some of your experiences with bullying and harassment? Yeah. um, So um, anyone that's ever been in a PhD doctorate, like card science doctoral program knows that um, it's not easy. And that I think that on both sides of the field, I think it's more of a, I think oftentimes it's a, you know, superior person, you know, bullying a, somebody that's under them, right? Um, Male or female, this happens. Um, There's actually whole websites and blogs and like forums associated to mental trauma of being in PhD programs and like things that people go to through um, just to get their doctoral degree, things that are not science related at all, that are 100% um, harassment. It's more of just, it's almost like hazing to a certain extent. Like, what can I make you do to make your life miserable that has nothing to do with your research, that has nothing to do with, you know, what you're actually working on or doing in the lab or what you know about your field of study. Um, and more so about just my power over you and the position that you're in. Um, because I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize in the hard sciences, at least, is that um, that academic 
advisor, so your PI, whose lab you choose to be in, the way most PhD programs are structured is your whole degree lies in your in their hand. Um, so at least with me, um, like I had a committee, but I didn't get to choose my committee. My PI chose his chose my committee. And they were all his closest and best friends. Every single person that I, he said he would consider my recommendations. Um, but every single person that was on my committee was not anyone that I had suggested and were all very close and buddy, buddy with him. So um, you don't really have anyone, you know, in your corner um, outside or most most graduate students don't have anyone in their corner for them when they're going through graduate school and dealing with um, bullying and harassment. So for me in particular, um, it started probably once I, it was started probably about six months after I made a decision to um, be in the lab and um, that I was going to be in. And so I was really interested in microbiome research. So my degree, uh, my doctoral degree is actually in translational medicine with a focus um, on in, in microbiology, specifically on uh, the microbiome and STI interactions within the microbiome. So um, I was studying sexually transmitted diseases and how they interact with the female vaginal microbiome. Um, so kind of funny that I would experience sexual harassment in a lab where right. I was studying women's health. Um, right. I mean, with- nothing surprises me anymore. I mean, it just you just need to you take a think. yeah, you just need to take a short foray onto the interwebs to see that men love to talk about things that they clearly have no idea nor any business talking about. Like, yes, please explain to me your thoughts on how a vagina works, you know? (laughs) Sure. So nothing surprises me. Yeah. So you were studying how the vagina interacts with diseases or rather how sexually transmitted diseases interact with vaginas in a lab where a man presumed to bully you about your lack of knowledge on the vagina that you have in your own body. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Basically, I I mean, it wasn't just that it was it was nitpicky things, um, you know, not setting any deadlines, um, like setting meetings and then not showing up for meetings. And it started out kind of like that, you know, having expectations, you go in, you meet those expectations and kind of the goalposts just keep moving. Um, And then um, I guess I was about three years in at this point, um, I was going to do my, so I had just finished my first full year of, you know, academic doctoral research. So the program I was in did a year of med school and then, you know, three to four years, five years of, um, lab research, um, to, you know, do your thesis basically, um, and to, to finish your dissertation. And so, uh, this was after my first full year in the lab and I was going to do my first like presentation at a big national meeting and he came in and there were two other girls in the lab at the time and then him. And that was what his lab consisted of. And, uh, he said, so I just, I just want to make sure, you know, y'all dress appropriately for your presentations, you know, don't wear any, you know, um, don't wear anything that looks slutty, you know, dress professional. (gasps) (laughs) And we were all like, um, so we all look at each other because, you know, one of us is a postdoc, the other one's a grad student and the other one's a research associate. 
And honestly, outside of the, the, the postdoc, probably like dress the cutest every day for work. Um, and then, you know, the research associate and then like I'm the grad student. So I look like a homeless person most days. Um, <laughs> I, I'm like lucky if I don't have like makeup from the night before still on my face. Um, well, but, but you know what, Megan, <laughs> this is something, you, you know, this is so, I, I want to say amazing, but none of this is even, I think the sad thing is that you say these things and it's like, oh yeah, of course that happens all the time. And that is what is so sad. Like no. first, you know, what you're talking about, like the little things continuously, you know, moving the goalpost and, you know, dangling the carrot, not showing up to meetings, not respecting deadlines. That essentially is is them not respecting you. They don't think your time or you are important. And a lot of women face this with with yeah. superiors and, and even not just superiors with male peers, right? Um, and sometimes with female peers. And one of the things, uh, and this is something that I experienced in, in the workplace earlier on in my career when you know, I was young and naive and, and, you know, the rose tinted glasses and I didn't want to say anything. Now, if somebody like did that, you know, I would, you know, burn the place to the ground. Like this Mm -hmm. is not okay. But, you know, I was afraid to speak up, but you know, now when, when I, when I talk to women, I say, if this is happening to you, go up to them and say, Hey, this is the second time that, that you have missed a meeting that you have set um, is there an issue? Can we set a time that we know that you can make it? Because I keep rearranging my schedule and I can't continue to do that. So, yeah. you know, I would appreciate if if we can have a mutually, you know, workable time that, that we can both respect because, you know, it's it's becoming very difficult for me. And just calling them out on it, you know, very point blank, because what else can yeah. you do? Yeah. So m- most people that know me know that I'm, I'm pretty confrontational about things like that. You know, I was not your typical grad student. I had a career um, before I went back to grad school. So, um, you know, I, I didn't speak up as soon as I should have, and I probably wasn't as direct, adamant, and forward, and I didn't escalate the problem as quickly as I should have. Um, so if there's any graduate students out there listening or anyone considering going to graduate school, you know, take notes that if these things start to become a problem, you should speak up early and soon. Um, yeah. The sooner you draw attention to the problems, the little problems at hand um, and work on fixing those, I will tell you most likely two things will, one of two things will happen. Either the problems will get addressed and the person will say, okay, this is not someone I can push around. This is not someone that I can bully. This is not someone that's going to just take these things and go with it. They're going to actually make my life miserable if I try and do this to them. Or your life is going to get progressively worse and you are going to have to change labs. Correct. One of two things is correct. Um, correct. But- and, and do you know what? I hate this. I hate this. What you were talking about when, you know, he comes in and he tells you all to not dress slutty. What is that even, number one? And number two, this goes back to how men infantilize women. You know, they're all sweetie and honey or or younger than or just somebody that is not at a level where you can speak professionally to them. That immediately when you see a woman, especially when you see students, right, a man will say, oh, these are you know, people that I can talk down to. And that is absolutely not only offensive, but it's, 
it's detrimental to the entire work culture. And, and what Megan, what Megan had just said for all of you that are listening, you must speak up. Now, you don't need to be confrontational. You don't need to be aggressive. But something that I'm thinking back to, if it was me when I was a grad student and somebody, you know, a, a higher up said that to me, I would probably just have a very grossed out look on my face and just very calmly say, that's completely inappropriate and just completely go back to my work. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure my facial expression gave it away. Like, <laughs> did you really just say that? But I will tell you another warning sign is that anytime somebody starts off by saying, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but right. And they're about to make a statement like that. You know, of course. a good way to intercept that, that I've learned over the years has just been, well, then maybe we just shouldn't talk about this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe you shouldn't say it and just don't, don't yes. say it. Don't say it. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe find, go back, find another way to say it and we'll talk about this later or, you know, just don't let them say it then. Even Absolutely. If Absolutely. <laughs> Although Zabine, I will tell you that sometimes it's nice to know where somebody's true head and their true thoughts are. <laughs> yeah. So you want to do that, but you also still want to, you know, you don't want to censor somebody so much that you don't know where they truly stand with you. Um, because I can also become problematic. Correct. I mean, you want to set boundaries, right? They need to yeah. make, they need to understand very clearly this is, and this is what is and is not acceptable. And mm-hmm. I, I found another tactic that's really effective is when people make really inappropriate comments or jokes, even if I get it, yeah. I act like I don't. What do you mean by that? You know, so I, he would also make, I, I am blonde. I have long blonde hair. I think the shortest my hair has been in my adult life is like shoulder length. Um, but he would crack blonde, blonde jokes right and left in the lab, which was funny because I was the only, like the other two people that worked in the lab were both brunettes. So like, I knew that they were a hundred percent directed at me, (laughs) you know, and he would even tell me, he would say, you know, people are going to look at you and they're going to think, oh, she's tall and she's blonde and she has no idea what um, she's talking about. Um, And that's what they're going to think when they first see you. And in my head, when people tell me that, I automatically think that's because that's what you thought about when you first saw me. (laughs) Exactly. I think that in some cases you can use that to your advantage because if people don't think that you know what you're talking about and then you kind of school them, that it's got more of an impact than if you come in and they're like, Oh, this person is so conceited and they think they know everything. Right. Right. But at the same time for an advisor of yours, somebody that holds your degree in their hands to make comments like that is a hundred percent inappropriate. Like, correct. They should not be telling you how to manipulate your personality or features about you to, you know, make your scientific argument stronger. Your science should speak for itself. Um, You know, no one reading my paper is going to, they're going to see my name at the top of it, but it's not like there's a picture of me that's like, and this is what she looks like. And this is what you should think about this scientific paper, because this is what she looks like. Right. You know, the science should speak for itself when it's either good science or it's bad science. Um, But that has nothing to do with what you look like. And even there's really great scientists that are terrible at giving verbal or public presentations, but their work in the lab is incredible. Um, And so, you know, to say that 
you know, you're not going to be successful as a scientist or, you know, to kind of play on your features more as maybe something that's going to inhibit you um, in the field is stupid. Well, it's, 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 it's a complete failure in the role as an advisor because you're not just yeah. an academic advisor. You're a holistic advisor designed there, put there, designed to support a student, not only in just their academic work, but in pursuing mm-hmm. life beyond the lab. And this is applicable even in the workplace, right? There are managers. And again, you know, one of the things that, that I always do when people say like, oh, this is what people are going to think is I very calmly look at them and say, is that what you think? Well, what do you think? Is that what you think? And always putting it back on them and putting them in an awkward position to re-examine the things that they're saying. If you make an inappropriate joke or a sexual joke, right, I'll get it, but I'll pretend like I don't. What do you mean by that? Can you explain that? And then I put them in an awkward position of having to explain this completely inappropriate joke and they're not going to do it again, right? Yeah. And it's so important, you know, for, for all the women that are listening, whether you're in academia, whether you're in the workplace, whether you are just beginning your, your job search to, to begin work or to re-enter the workplace, do not let anybody, anybody, regardless of their position, their gender, nobody tell you what you can or cannot do on the basis of what you look like, your gender, anything. You know what you're mm-hmm. good at. You know where you're an expert. And that's it. Now, the awful part is, as Megan mentioned, if it's your advisor or your superior or your manager that's saying these things to you, what recourse do you have, right? Yeah. Um, What what recourse do you have? So, Megan, I mean, what what would you tell these women that are listening? If you are experiencing workplace harassment, bullying, what should they do? So I'll expand on my story a little bit before I get to that for a few minutes. Um, So I all these little things along the way you know, a lot of them, I just rolled my eyes and said, whatever. Some of them like getting cursed out in the lab because I ran a PCR at 8 p.m. And uh, I ran a PCR at 8 a.m. one day that took an hour and a half to run instead of at 8 p.m. the night before. (laughs) And it didn't matter. Scientifically, it did not matter. Um, It just had to be his way or the highway, basically you know, getting cursed out in lab for that stuff in front of other people. Um, you know, when I got pregnant, um, I was told that, um, I needed to hurry up and do some work because throughout my pregnancy, my brain was going to stop, start. It was going to stop working the further into pregnancy I got. And I know pregnancy brain is real. Um, (laughs) like there are days that you wake up cloudy and foggy, but honestly, like I, I told one of the grad student, uh, one of the uh, postdocs in my lab this at the time. I was like, I think that I second guess whether I turned off the stove more often than when I when I wasn't pregnant than I have in the last like, six seven months <laughs> since I've been pregnant. Right. Um, that was like I was cloud. You know, some days you're cloudy, but I think even when you're not pregnant, some days you you wake up and you're like, oh, my head just is not in this today. This is not a you know, just a right. pregnancy thing. But, but you don't forget core knowledge. Like yeah. you don't suddenly become pregnant and forget like, what do the letters PCR stand for? Oh. And how do I and do my it. job that I've been doing and studying? Like that's yeah. ridiculous. And, you know, things that I'm meticulous about, like I'm a list maker. I will, my husband actually yells at me because I leave all these to-do lists sitting around the house. <laughs> but 
like if I have it on my list, it's going to get done. Like I don't leave what I, I don't leave work until my to-do list is done. I don't, you know, go run errands on Saturday until my house to-do list is done. Um, like I'm a to-do list and I stick to that to-do list and he had access to my to-do list every single day. So it wasn't like I was just being completely absent-minded about things or forgetting things. I had, when that comment was made, I had not done anything to invoke that comment. It's not like I had made a huge error in the lab or made a big mistake or, you know, something that he felt like he could latch that comment onto. Um, It was just out of the blue, out of nowhere. And it came with threats of, um, and I call them threats because that's legitimately how I took them, of you're pregnant and therefore I'm not going to let you graduate when you should graduate regardless of whether you have all your work done or not. Um, You're going to end up taking time out of the lab that I don't want you to take out. And therefore I'm just not going to let you graduate. So um, as you mentioned earlier, um, types of, you know, what do you do when you're faced with that situation? Basically I'm being harassed. um, I'm being cursed out in lab. (laughs) I'm, you know, being told not to dress slutty. I'm, the goalposts are constantly being moved all along the way. Um, you know, and it's not just with one, it's not just like specifically regarding like one thing. Um, it's anything that he happened to want at that time. Um, he's not showing up for meetings. I schedule a meeting. I ask him if this works. He accepts the meeting and then does not show up to the meeting. <laughs> um, you know, so so what do you do when you have just, massive harassment, basically. It's threatening. It's harassment. Um, He's not um, upholding his role as a mentor. Um, It's making my life more difficult. Um, He's threatening to not let me graduate on any grounds except for the fact that I'm currently pregnant and therefore the work that I do the last couple months of graduate school is not going to be as good as the work I did early on, even though he has nothing to base that on. Because we haven't gotten to that point. I haven't given him that last couple months of work. He's just assuming it's not going to be as good. So um, I was very, very lucky to have a dean that stood by my side and said, this is not right. This is not okay. Um, And she um, fixed my situation. And when she had looked at all the everything I had done in the lab, I actually had two chapters that I was told one chapter my committee wanted me to do. Um, but she said, no, too much work already. We're not doing that chapter. Plus a whole nother chapter that I had done in addition to what my committee had wanted me to do. <laughs> that was she also said, nope, not putting that in your dissertation either. So I had six chapters to my dissertation. And I was going to have eight chapters to my dissertation, despite being pregnant, despite being in graduate school. Anyone that's been in graduate school knows that an eight chapter dissertation is a lot of work. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was basically um, how I fixed the problem. She, I escalated the problem to her and it should have been escalated a lot sooner. Um, but until I got pregnant and until I think I had to wait until he just got completely outlandish with his comments before I said, okay, this is not okay. Cause I, I'm kind of an eye roller and I sit back and you say a couple of inappropriate things and I just, you know, take it on the chin, whatever. 
Um, but it got to the point where my graduation was being threatened because of it. Um, and not because of the work I was doing in the lab because things weren't going his way. Um, and so, so that's so when- did you see a different, so say, so you said she fixed it and that is so important because women need to find internal advocates and support systems, right? You need mentors within your own organization. If you're at a workplace, whether you're at a school, at a job, wherever you are, there are people that live outside the ecosystem of you and your manager or you and this person that is harassing you. Find and reach out to these people and leverage them because I'm telling you, it's very easy to feel isolated when you're being harassed, that it's just you and this bully in this little bubble. But that's not true. There is an entire world around you guys that you become really sucked into because the bullies, especially in the workplace, make you believe you are at their complete behest and mercy. And that's what bullies do. And that is not the case. So if you are being bullied, if you're being harassed in the workplace, escalate, reach out to human resources, reach out to another manager, reach out to a director, speak up because nobody, nobody has the right to do that to you. But I think one of the things, Megan, that people get nervous about is, okay, after I escalate, this person is going to be even worse. So how was he? Yeah. So, um... I I will also add to that, that not always the people that you think are going to be your advocates are your advocates. Right. And people that you don't suspect are going to be your advocates are your advocates. So that's basically what happened in this case is I had a female co-chair on my committee who I thought was going to be a solid advocate. She had a more clinical focus and I wanted to go more clinical when I was done with graduate school. And she was always very nice to me. And when I reached out to her about everything that was going on, she was like, well, you know, it was one of those, should I take this to HR? Should I take this to the dean? And she was like, well, I just wouldn't really take it to anyone because it's just going to make him angry. You know, you oh. can talk to me about it, but just don't take it to anyone. And that was really surprising to me. And <laughs> because I was like, okay. You're my co-chair. You technically have just as much authority as he does, even though she didn't feel like it because he was tenured and she wasn't and yada, yada, yada. Um, He just, it it just, it was surprising to me. And it took me a little bit of time before I told myself, okay, the Dean was kind of intimidating to me because she was this very strong. She had this presence about her. And I was like, she's going to tell me to stop being a little bitch go suck it up, go back to lab, get your work done. You can do this. Just go handle it, take it on the chin and just, you know, do it. And she actually ended up, um, I, because of the amount, once she saw the amount of work I had accomplished in the lab um, and all of my data sets and everything, she told me not to go back to the lab anymore. I did not have to step foot in his office or in his lab ever again. And so when I say she fixed the problem, she removed my problem (laughs) completely. That's Um, amazing. There were also other concerns um, at the time um, that did not have to do with me. Um, I was kind of involved because I was part of his lab, um, but he had done some other things that he was starting to get in trouble with from the graduate school as well. 
Um, and so that on top of my complaint, I think she was like, nope. Um, and she also pulled, there was another, by this time, there was a male graduate student in the lab as well. Um, and she had pulled him from the lab. So um, they were basically saying, this is not a good environment for any student to be in. Um, and I, I mean, I know that this podcast is about, you know, women and moms, but um, I'm, I've always been very careful to say whether something is, you know, intentional harassment, like just superior, like, um, you know, su- like advisor grad student type of harassment or whether it's male, female harassment. Um, and to this day, I, I won't say that he was harassing me just because I was a female, um, despite some of the comments he made, because I truly don't know his intention. It might have just been, you know, she's a grad student in my lab, so I can treat her the way I want to treat her. And these are easy targets because I right. was pregnant at the time, right? Um, so I've always been very careful, um, you know, not to assume his intention in any way and just to say, like, this is what was said and this is a problem. Right. Um, regardless of intention. <laughs> Um, and I think that's because, it because your your intention at the end of the day also just doesn't matter, right? And your your yeah. impact is greater than your intent. So yeah. and, and I think that's really important because it's easy to misconstrue what Megan said into thinking, oh, he doesn't mean it. That's not what she said. What she said is we don't know why he said those things, but mm-hmm. he certainly meant to say them, right? We don't just don't know yeah. why. But the why is yeah. not our problem. He said it. He should not have said it, and we need to rectify so that he does not say it again to me or to anybody else. So I want to make that very clear. What Megan is saying, you don't need to explain away why did he say this, what was his, it doesn't matter. He said something, if somebody is saying something to you that is making you uncomfortable, their intention does not matter. It's the impact, and it must be addressed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so because of everything that was going on, they ended up pulling, you know, also the male grad student from the lab. And I mean, honestly, he was getting hit pretty hard, um, in a different way than I was, but you know, that same type of, um, abuse that goes on in graduate school when you are a grad student, um, working in a lab for somebody else. Um, and it's not, there have been numerous, numerous people that dropped out of graduate school, not because they didn't like what grad school was about. They didn't like, you know, the research, it's not because they didn't like the research. It's not because they didn't like working in the lab. It's because their advisors just put them through hell. And they said, this is not worth it. This is not worth it at all. Especially when you look at, you know, if you're wanting to go into academia instead of a clinical setting as a grad student, you know, you do a postdoc. And so you go through four to six years of hell to make $60,000 a year for another two to four years to go into a fellowship where you might make, you know, sixty dollars to $80,000 a year um, for another two years. And then eventually, you know, you might end up making a hundred K, like, then you have to slowly work your way up through tenure. Like, right. is it worth it? You know, yeah. is is what you're doing in the long run worth the strain, the lifestyle, the harassment that a lot of graduate students have to go through to get that degree? And I would argue that if my end goal wasn't, you know, what it was, that I would have not 
gone to graduate school. Like that would have been a no. Yeah. You know, I knew what my end goal was and that required me going to graduate school. But if that, if my end goal had been anything like remotely different than what it was, I would have been like, nope, this isn't worth it. Like yeah. no one should have to go through this for, for this outcome. Like, <laughs> And I think a lot of people don't, I, I think a lot of people don't have the big picture in mind on the other side. So for example, you know, these people, these managers, these advisors, these people in positions of power, you know, men and women, because we heard from Megan, you know, the, the misogyny, it comes from women too, right? Where mm-hmm. certain, you know, I, I always, I, I laugh and I, it's like in the horror movie, the calls coming from inside the house, right? It's, it's, it's women that are doing it to other women. So by no means yeah. expect that just because there's a woman there that she's going to have your back. I mean, be prepared for anything. But I think when what Megan is describing, where people wash out, they wash out of you know rigorous academic programs, they wash out of rigorous career development programs. You know, I began my career in investment banking, and I was the only girl the youngest girl, the only woman of color, you know, the washout rate was almost 95%. The only reason I stuck through it is because I am stubborn as hell and I refused and I was hazed. I was hazed and Mm -hmm. it was messed up. And you know what? Um, People will say, oh, you know, a sword is forged in fire. That's not fire. That is abuse. And nobody, nobody deserves that. I'm I'm like if you want to put me through the fire to make me better, put my science through the fire. Correct. Put Correct. my data through the fire. Don't put my my character through the fire. Correct. Don't put you know my um, the fact that I'm female or blonde. Don't put the fact that I've chosen to have a child while I'm Correct. in graduate school. That that literally has Correct. nothing to do with the type. of with the type or quality of science that I am performing and producing and putting out there. And so like, if you want to refine something, refine my science. And that's what it should be about. You know, if your advisor, if you're in a rigorous field and your advisor's on you about how you're performing an experiment or, okay, well, you did this experiment, but you didn't have the controls. So we need to start discussing what type of controls you need, why you need those controls. And they get mad at you because you still don't ever put controls in your experiment. That's different than them calling out like your character or them calling out other factors about you that have nothing to do with your, um, with your, with your qualifications, your ability. Yeah. I mean, not even your qualifications, but basically like I, I didn't go into graduate school to have somebody tell me when I could and could not have a kid. Like I went into graduate school to learn how to do good quality science, um, and to learn the difference between bad science and good science. Um, (laughs) and so having a kid has nothing to do with that. So if you're going to talk about the quality of the data I'm producing, that's different than discussing other factors about my life and how I choose to live my life. Um, And so, you know, you have to look, if you are a graduate student or you consider going into graduate school, you know, take that criticism about your science and take that to heart and learn from it. But if somebody's criticizing other aspects of your life, you don't have to put up with that. And you shouldn't put up with that. Absolutely. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Well, Megan Emerson Brown, doctor, hard fought, hard won. And so Dr. Megan Emerson Brown, PhD, clinical microbiology, public health and infection control, the full title, because God knows blood, sweat and tears to earn it. Thank you for being on Moms at Work with me today. Thanks so much, Sabine. It was a good time. Oh, my pleasure. And for all of you that are listening, a few important, important things just to look back on our conversation with Megan. It's always, always, always important that you remember um, and you retain in your minds that your worth is not tied to your gender, your family status, the way you look, none of it. Your worth, your value is based on what you assign to yourself and you deserve to be treated with respect by your peers, by superiors, by managers. If you are going to be developed, if you are going to be advised, if you are going to be managed, criticized, let it be about your work performance, not on any personal factors. And this is something I think a lot of women struggle with, especially mothers, where we feel that just by virtue of having had children, just by virtue of maybe needing to leave a little early to pick up a child or needing to come in a little bit late because we had to drop off some kids, but that we compensate by working twice as hard, take no breaks, somehow that still makes us less. It does not. It does not in any way. That is not who you are. Being a mother does not in any way impact or detract the quality of your work. So for all of you listening, you know, there is no place for bullying. There is no place for harassment. If you are uncomfortable, you don't need to explain it away. You don't need to rationalize it away. Speak up, find support, get help, advocate for yourself. If you can't, get others to advocate on your behalf because you deserve better. And for managers, advisors, people in positions of power that are listening, it is a detriment to your business to treat your employees this way, to treat your students this way. If you want your companies, if you want your schools, if you want your labs, if you want your teams to perform, treat your people with respect. So with that, until next time, I'm Zabine Mirza, and this is Moms at Work. Follow us on social media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out more episodes at jobs.mom slash moms at work.